Somewhere between waking and sleeping, on our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 36 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a semi-regular podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host Seymour Jacklin. You can visit bordersofsleep.com for some more information or to leave us some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer. sound engineering is by Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from... Countryside Stroll by Carrie Live, which you can get from magnitude.com. So, if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. My Journey by Seymour Jacklin. Why would you take the time to listen to the story I'm burdened with tonight? Well, we have many hours until dawn, and we've exhausted conversation. To be honest, all that talking was a little bit intense. Sometimes when we're together it feels as if we're trying to teach each other with our talk and too often I confess I'm really listening to my own thoughts about what you're saying and not really listening to you. As your words go in my ears I'm formulating a response that will fuel the conversation and drive us onwards. I have a tale I'd like to tell you. In fact I'm desperate to share it with you because I trust you. Let's break for a moment, get a coffee, and then pull our chairs closer. And when I'm finished, it'll be your turn to spin a yarn. Well, I found myself in an old bookshop that had once been a train station, where long platforms had laid down. There were now bookshelves in rank and file, by category, promising to hold all the knowledge in the world. That's a good feeling anticipating knowledge. It might be better than knowing. If all that was ever known or imagined was offered to you in a vast library, where would you begin? I tried to calm myself and centre. Somewhere on these shelves, I believed, and always trust, there was a book that I could hold in my hand that would answer my prayers and change my life. Sometimes volumes declare that they'll do that for you on their covers, but they fail to deliver it in their pages. This book will change your life. I can count on one hand the books that did, and not one of them warned me what I was in for. That's why I tried to stay calm, like a hunter listening for the crack of a twig somewhere down there in the paper forest. You can't afford to be deceived by appearances or muddled with thoughts about what you ought to read. Down the shelves I went, with a scent for something like moss and dead leaves. I went looking for a friend, an old soul, who'd kept a diary a long time ago. A sage, who had written with one purpose, it had seemed, to tell me 
that I'm not alone. I wanted to hear his voice again, because I felt so very alone on that day. There is an unpronounced silence between Macaulay and Mackenzie, where I always look for my grandfather George. If he's not in fantasy, he might be in the children's section or even theology, but mostly he's not there at all. Approaching casually as if I didn't especially care, I ran my eyes over the spines and followed the maz down to the max and slowed down and let my fingers tickle over the tops of the books until they fell affectionately on MacDonald. George. There was one here. The Fantasties. What would you really do if you found gold? Somewhere for the taking. More gold than you could carry. I think I'd walk away and think about it. Leave it. Come back the next day, or maybe even the next week, after having thought about the gold, having considered how it would change my life, and decided that that was what I wanted. I'd have to at least sleep on the gold's proposal and go back with my answer. Yes, gold, I choose you. But if that gold were out on the highway, where people passed it, people who'd pocket it without thinking, I suppose then I'd put it in my pocket and do the thinking later. But then once the gold was in my pocket, it would start to take hold and speak into my thoughts and narrow down my options. But I'm digressing. There's another part of me that would trust that this gold came along at the right moment. When I was ready for it, it found me. Treasured books are more like that. I must have been like a fisherman who's bagged a whopper in the first hour, but carries on fishing just for the hell of it and the sheer pleasure of not needing to catch anything more that day. So I passed another hour, idly browsing the bookshop with that book under my arm before I paid and walked out and back into the world that most people live in, at least for a time. Like that fisherman too, who might take the catch home and not have it for tea, thinking to savour it when the wine and the company are just right, so I travelled with the Fantasties, unopened for one week, and then another. It was in the grounds of a ruined abbey in the Scottish borders one spring afternoon, with the clearest sky in place of a roof, that the moment seemed to be right. Then three days I was away in that book. When I returned from it, I felt freer and nobler and wiser by several years. You can read it for yourself, please do. It would baffle a critic to understand why it's so well loved. There's so many plots and some lead nowhere or seem irrelevant. And there are settings and characters that seem to be something that never materialises. But anyone who's lived with their eyes open will find themselves looking in a mirror that distorts so many times that they forget what they look like until they come to a place of not caring anyway and being like a child again. That's what happens when I spend time with my grandfather, George. My body went through the motions of work at the hospital, popping tablets into pots, writing reports. I cooked dinner in the evenings, I walked the dog, and I slept. But inwardly, 
I was journeying in a shadowland where fragments of my own dreams were hidden in the trees and castles. About this time I put into motion a plan that had been two years in coming. I resigned my respectable job in order to put my soul into writing and chase my pen wherever it would take me. The most pressing need was to write for money, so I set up as a freelancer and began to get a trickle of work, ghost writing, for others, until I felt just like a ghost. It was hardly the life I'd dreamt of, but I was on the right road and trying to find what they call a voice. Every few days I questioned if I'd done the right thing, and many times rehearsed the steps that had led me there. In this state of mind, I travelled south for a visit to old haunts and to attend a friend's wedding. It was good to set my feet on the chalk again, to walk in the subaqueous broken light of beech woods, where I'd always fancied the boughs were great plumes of seaweed and that the birds were fish. Down Oxfordshire lanes, the ghost of my sixteen-year-old self stalked out of the hedgerows and followed me about on a red bicycle, named after his favourite piece of ragtime, Froggy Moor. Alfred North Whitehead said, The deepest definition of youth is life as yet untouched by tragedy. It's all very well for you, I say to my seventeen-year-old self. You haven't seen much life yet. But that young man's heart was so full of something that I had lost. I began to wonder if I could steal it back. At my friend's wedding, another previous me began to make himself felt. I was back with these people, these very precious people, these faces from seven years before. All of us had been connected by a piece of common history and then separated in steps by inescapable forces. We talked and laughed so much my throat began to hurt. Most beautiful of all, it was as if, unbeknown to each other, we'd all been reading the same book and had got to the same point of grappling with the same chapter in our lives. This is how you can be sure that you've been together in some place when you've been away from people in geography. You know the same things, but have hardly exchanged a word. In this circle of friends there were new faces, accomplices and spouses who, it turns out, had also arrived on the same page. As the night wore on, not a word was wasted on me, and I felt the threads beginning to draw together, discerning the same reflected light in each rolling ball of our conversation. After coffee, the band struck up, It was too loud to talk in anything but pairs. That was about the time I talked with a man who I came to know as the story man, who made sense of everything by saying just enough. Like the best of those yarn spinners who lived a very long time ago, he reminded me where the cracks are, those chasms in the crust of consciousness that lead to a kingdom of spirit. When a story comes from that realm, it has the power to make us freer and nobler and wiser by years. Scribes have ever tried to describe it in doctrine, by line upon line upon line upon pages in pulpits and pamphlets. But the real wisdom comes when we give ourselves up, for our hearts to be rolled and unruffed in the tides of narrative. 
From the libraries of heaven there are still so many stories to tell, and books with pages waiting to be filled. Like a fairy tale, they unfold, going from castle room to castle garden and returning from deep forests trailing shadow and leaf. Like a dream, they turn our topsoil and break up the rocks beneath, then seed all manner of fruit-bearing trees upon the fresh ground of our imaginations. With a few words, the story man awakened in me the boy who had just learnt to write cursive script twenty-one years ago, in a classroom, making stories for his friends from the cast of imaginary characters that surrounded him. I told him about my grandfather George and how his fantasies had worked on my soul and how I suddenly felt free to believe these things were more real than I'd allowed them to be. As I travelled back north on a coach, exhausted and happy, I turned my jacket over and atop me like a blanket, drew my knees up until I was curled like a seed on the seat, closed my eyes and soon came to the borders of sleep. I found myself in an art gallery, in the company of another friend. We were both standing in front of a picture that mystified us, and we decided to sit down and look at it until it made sense. The canvas was almost entirely black except on the left-hand side, where the artist had very cleverly, with a few lines of white, suggested a pen standing upright, pointing upwards. The effect was to make the pen look like a lighthouse on a pitch-black night. After a long silence, my friend turned to me and said, Your pen is straight in the darkness, pointing to heaven. You may be confused and not know where to go, but your pen will mark the way. Follow it upwards. Now we spent the next hour in that art gallery, discussing the meaning of various paintings we found there. But that, as they say, is a story for another day. And this one is now at an end. <laughs>